0: One of the greatest pitfalls for any sort of institution or establishment is losing sight of its mission, Uh, losing sight of the purpose for which that institution or establishment exists in the first place, just forgetting the reason that you're, you even exist and the reason that you're doing what you're doing. The longer an establishment uh, goes on, exists, and, and the more complex it gets, uh, the easier it is to honestly just get lost in, in, in all of the busyness and you start scratching your head and you say, well, what are we even doing anymore? you kind of get lost, you get caught up in everything, and you say, what are we doing again? Why do we exist? There was a gal named Peggy Noonan. I'd never heard her name until this week, but she surveyed various large American institutions from journalism to government to Wall Street to public schools to to even some large church denominations, and she made a convincing case. She wrote an article with a convincing case that said Every single one of these has lost their mission. From where they started to where they are now, they've they've lost their mission. She says, name an institution, and you'll probably see a diminished sense of mission or one that has disappeared or is disappearing. And as all these institutions forgot their mission, they entered the empire of spin. They're just kind of spinning out there. They turned more and more attention Resources and effort to public perception of their institution and not to the reality of it. You might have to think through what she's saying there. They turned more attention, resources, and effort to public perception of their institution and not to the reality of it. Everyone gave their effort to how things seemed to be and not how they actually were. So she sounds a lot more like the old, old prophets like Nehemiah when she called on institutions to repair, rebuild, and return to their missions. Before Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven, he too gave his church a clear mission. It's, it's very clear. No matter who we are, no matter what we do, we are to link ourselves to the mission that Christ has given us. The mission has never changed. It was stated and, it, and it's, it's stayed the same since. The mission never changes and we've got to be sure that we, we stick to the mission. In, Ma, in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said it this way, we are to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the, to the ends of the earth. That's what the church is to be about in the present age in which we're living. We're not Israel. We're not not just idle. We're not uh, just just hanging out and waiting for everybody to come to us. We're to go and we're to make disciples. It's a very clear mission, and I've summed it up this way this morning. Uh, Our mission in the present age in which we're living is very clear. It's to glorify God in the present age by communicating the good news with people, with the immediate attention, intention of converting someone to faith in Christ. We want to see them get saved. We want to see them uh, uh, put their trust in Christ. And from then on out, we have this ultimate intention of seeing that believer be sanctified to become a mature disciple-making member of the body of Christ. You might think of Ephesians chapter 4. We, we know what our mission is. We want to see people come to faith in Christ, and then we want to see them become disciples. You make more disciples, right? Who, who, keep, who keep going with this mission. And I think we all know this. This is nothing new to us, is it? But I think there's an epidemic among Christians no one likes to talk about that I want to call CMD. It's called Christian Mission disorder. And it's got these side effects like delusionment, distraction, and division. It comes with side effects like that. And so today, from Acts chapter 8, 1 through 25, I just want to look at some, some positive mission-driving principles, things that, that are going to drive us to the mission and help us keep, stick to the mission, keep on track with the mission but then I also want to look at some mission-denying principles, things that are going to actually take away from our pursuit of accomplishing the mission. Remember last week in chapter 7, uh, the first drop of blood was shed for Christ's name. You remember who was martyred, Stephen? First Christian martyr, and, and Jesus welcomed him into heaven, and his, his, uh, his death for Christ's sake was a very powerful powerful witness but uh, the persecution you see in chapter 8 verse 1 it just keeps on going just reading the first few verses here on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him so they they're grieving, but they're not grieving as those who have no hope, right? But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And So the first uh, our item in your outline you see there is that the church is scattered. Number one, the church is Scattered, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and this this church that so far in Acts they, you know, we've since we've been in the book of Acts, we haven't left Jerusalem at all. The the church uh, was got started on in Acts chapter two when the Spirit came. And they've just been there. They've been growing. More people have been coming to know the Lord. They've been growing in the Lord. It's been great. And they have all this incredible, like, the descriptions of the church are unreal. They're all, you know, one heart, one mind. They have all things in common. There's gladness, awe, and wonder. I mean, God's doing miracles among them. The apostles get put in prison. God, you know, sovereignly bails them out. It's unbelievable stuff. And they're all excited about this church thing going on, this new movement, this new community of believers. But then, all of a sudden, Stephen gets stoned to death, and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? And you can imagine the questions start to enter their mind, like, why, why is God allowing this, right? How come he's not bailing us out still? Uh, what's going on? Is, is, he, is he not at the controls anymore? You know. And, but then you start to realize, when you get towards the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, that those sort of questions, why would God allow this to happen? How could he? You start to realize those are pretty short-sighted questions because of two reasons. Number one, Saul is introduced. Saul is soon to become the apostle Paul and the greatest missionary ever. So he becomes like the, the predecessor to Stephen. And uh, secondly, you see here, as the Christians are scattered, what else scattered with them? The word of God, right? The gospel. Someone's got their Gideon app out there, huh? That's all right. That's a good app. If you want a good, uh, a good app, Bible app, get on that. Uh, get the Gideon one. It's great. It's fantastic. Audio, it'll play it for you. And uh, anyway, as the Christians scatter, so does the good news of Christ. And so it's just like Genesis 50, 20. God uses the evil for, for good, he can do that. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is actually explaining how uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 is fulfilled. How the gospel advanced from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And, and, and the answer is, how, how, did it, how did it advance? It was through, well, persecution. And nobody experienced, no one, no one reads chapter 1 verse 8 and says, boy, they're just going to, you know, they're going to willingly go out. take the gospel right you think they would but they didn't it took persecution to move them out beyond that comfort zone in jerusalem and to get them going that's how the this negative circumstance of persecution was like a catalyst for gospel advancement and and if you study church history that's one of the things that you see whenever there's a great persecution we saw this in china Right about, about 100 years ago, Christianity's growing, and it's, you know, there's all these missionaries, and then all the missionaries get kicked out of China, and there's great persecution. Well, what we found out when the, the Iron Curtain lifted was what? The church exploded because they remained faithful to the mission. Okay, and, that, and that's a, a principle we can take from this is that proper response to persecution can actually result in gospel advancement. Why? Because of witnesses like Stephen, people who have a bold and enduring witness. People like Paul are looking at that and it's, and it's in their conscience convicting them like, wow, they just gave up their life for what they believe in. I think those, those are the goads that were poking at Saul's conscience when Jesus confronts Paul and he says, it's pretty hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? Because he saw that day. He saw Stephen's face light up. He saw, he heard Stephen's witness. And you guys, I'm telling you, as soon as you start to, I've experienced this, as soon as you guys start to, maybe you do already, but if you start to live out your faith, uh, whereas previously maybe you didn't, but you start to take your faith seriously, all of a sudden your friends and family members around you, they start to become convicted, they become a little harsh, don't they? Or, Or they become very religious themselves all of a sudden, and they start claiming different you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I believe this or that. But anyway, that's what it does. Bold witnesses can be very convicting to those who are around them. Um, when the church continues to trust God, persecution can actually have the exact opposite effect as is intended. This word scatter is where we get the term diaspora, and it's derived from, that term is derived from this word, and it can be used for sowing seed, they scatter, like you, you scatter seed, and it kind of made me think of a tumbleweed, just like a tumbleweed breaks off from its root, tumbleweed is a long, skinny root, and, and when the wind blows, it breaks off of that root, and it starts rolling, and everywhere it rolls, it's dropping seeds, unfortunately, okay, <laughs> as a farmer, I hate and fought these weeds a lot, but Just like a tumbleweed breaks off and it's rolling and it's dropping seeds, so the church that's forced to pick up its roots in Jerusalem and it's driven by the wind of persecution, it's scattering seeds of the gospel everywhere it goes and it leads to an unexpected gospel advancement. It's pretty neat, huh? Actually, if the conditions are right, you can see in a conventional tillage farm exactly where that tumbleweed blew everywhere that tumbleweed blew, you'll see kosher coming up. You know, you can, you can track it in the field. Anyway, fun farming fact for you. Um, even though this is not desirable, no one desires persecution. I'm not saying we pray for persecution at all. It's extremely tough. And by the way, God will give us the grace for persecution if it comes in, in this sort of quality, you know, in this sort of intensity. So I wouldn't worry about that. You know, if, if persecution comes, am I going to stay strong? Well, God God gives you grace when you need it. Amen? Um, even though it's tough, they stick to the mission. I like that. Uh, they don't let it silence them. And a, con- a contrasting mission denying principle would be for you to let, uh, you know, it would be for them to let the difficulty of the mission now stop them from sticking to it. It's just too hard. I guess I'll just, I just won't speak about Christ anymore because it's just too difficult. That would be a mission-denying principle. Part of the reason I think we don't advance the gospel today, and we don't even see bloodshed here in America, but part of the reason we don't advance the gospel and make disciples is because it's just plain difficult at times, isn't it? That's very difficult. That's why we don't open our mouths enough. It's going to require a touch of self-sacrifice in that moment. A little, a little dropping of our agenda and picking up his agenda. We do have an agenda. And it's to make disciples. And that's okay. That's our command. That's our orders from our leader. Bold witnesses, though. Bold witnesses like Stephen are powerful, even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. Let's look at verse 5. Philip went down, it says... Uh, That's topographically, he's talking about elevation. He's going north to Samaria, but he's going down in elevation to a city in Samaria and proclaiming Christ to them. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city there's rejoicing and so now we see officially we are beyond jerusalem now and we are in samaria and notice that those who were scattered they weren't silenced like philip it says they they went about preaching the word of christ he's proclaiming christ to them Uh, philip is someone that we ran into you might recall his name from acts chapter 6 he was one of the seven deacon-like men that were appointed to serve in the church there to serve tables So he's a lot like Stephen, he's full of faith, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 21 verse 8 calls him an evangelist, we'll run into him again in Acts 21, and because he's a a Hellenistic Jew, and we've looked at that, it means he's a a Greek-influenced Jew, you know, probably used the Septuagint for his scriptures, Um, he's going to be the perfect guy to reach out to the Samaritans. And we'll learn more about the Samaritans either. They weren't purebred Jews. They're kind of like a Jewish-Gentile mix. And so uh, Philip's like the perfect guy to reach out to them because they kind of have something in common. They're kind of like a, on the fringe of like the perfect Jew, right? So Luke's actually going to, by doing this, he's moving us away from a, soul, from a soul focus on the Jews in Jerusalem to the kind of like the fringe Jews, the Samaritans, and then in Acts chapter 10, we'll get to this point where the gospel goes to the complete Gentile, the complete non-Jewish person. And that's like, you know, that's, that's the, big, the big highlight, I think, one of the highlights in the book of Acts, is when the Gentiles receive the Spirit of God. But uh, this, this man, Philip, he's, he's a man who ended up, think about this, in a place that he never planned on. Any of you guys ever end up in a place you never dreamed you would be? Like Shadrach, Nebraska? right (laughs) yeah yeah we can all relate to this can't we but notice that philip's the perfect guy for where god took him think about that and he's a perfect fit for it it's awesome god specifically puts us sometimes in places we never planned to further his work and we're perfect for where he sends us sometimes isn't that great i like that principle and I like the description of his ministry here because I read it, and I'm like, man, spirits are being cast out, uh, you know, demons, paralyzed people, lame people are being healed, and there's all this rejoicing, and it just, your mind just automatically goes back to Jesus' ministry. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is. Yeah, Jesus has ascended, but he continues his ministry through his people. It's, it's the acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, Note that these miracles are not uh, televangelist miracles. Okay? There's no, no doubting them. There's no question. These miracles are undeniable. They're immediate, and they're public. And they're not done in a studio. So where you can question them. And then he doesn't, and Philip's not asking for money after he does a miracle. Okay? Uh, something to watch out for. And, and notice, though, that the miracles are not an end in themselves. Did you catch that? He's not just doing miracles to do miracles. He's not wasting the power of God, if I could say that. When people saw the miracles, what did they do? What were they drawn to? The miracles drew them to the message, to the gospel. So he when, said when the people saw the miracles, it says, they, they paid attention to his message. Miracles are about... Uh, drawing people to the message, to the Messiah. And, and, and it's going to do that because they're all expecting a Messiah who can come and, and heal the lame, right? And, and, and give sight to the blind and do these big miracles who can lift the curse. Well, that's what the miracles are pointing to. Jesus is the one who, when his kingdom comes, is going to lift the curse. And he's going to bring this sort of incredible healing that we, we all long for. But uh, that's that's kind of the second mission-driving principle, is to remember ministry can involve a lot of things. We can have a lot of fun in church, uh, uh, but ultimately, it's about getting people to hear the message. The mission centers on the message of Christ, not the miracles, not anything else. I always think of that quote. There was a guy, I think it was Francis of Assisi, way back in the day, he said, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. Right? And I, and I get that. I think it's important to model Christ and model the gospel. I mean, we had a whole series on modeling Christ last summer, but that's still not enough. People have to actually hear the message. They have to hear that Jesus died for their sins and that they can be saved through faith in Him, by trusting in what He did for them. People have to hear it. Faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. Amen? So it's, it's great that we can be salt and light for Christ in this world by doing different good deeds and works, but the main thing is the message. And the reason why this is important because is because there's a social gospel out there that's basically out there to... Uh, it diminishes, actually diminishes the gospel message and says we need to be out there doing a social work we need to end world hunger we need to give everybody fresh wells of water you know we need to dig wells and we need to do this and that and 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 i would agree but we're never going to end world hunger to be honest with you and even if everybody has food everybody has water what do people need more than that spiritual, they need their spiritual thirst and their spiritual hunger satisfied. They need the living water that Christ offers. They need the spiritual bread that He is for their souls. The mission denying principle for this one would be to let other things, even good things like fighting hunger and things like this, uh, you know, putting up orphanages, Good things, right? But you can let those things distract you from the mission. From the mission. Just this week, guys, I I blew it. I'm sorry. I just flat out blew it. Because I was in this conversation and it just, just drifted to that vaccination, unvaccination debate. Any of you guys get caught up in that recently? Really? it just ruined the whole conversation. It ruined a perfectly good time. It just, it made that, that, that time unpleasant. And what's more important? Who's vaccinated or who's not? Is that eternal? No, who cares? Okay, what's eternal is who has Christ and who doesn't? Okay, one's eternal, one is not. There's a lot of things that are going on today that we can argue about all day long. And we're not going to get anywhere. Things that in the end basically don't matter. But what matters most is when people have Christ. They have forgiveness. They have freedom in Christ. They have life that Christ brings. That's what's important, amen? Yeah, there's a a day coming during the tribulation period. I don't plan to be here. And there's going to be a time when when people are going to have to decide between Christ and Antichrist. And it's going to involve some of these things, right? You don't buy or sell or trade without the, your card, basically. <laughs> your vaccination card. I don't know what it is. That's what people are likening that to. Guys, it's not here yet. Vaccines are not the mark of the beast, okay? Stick to the gospel, that's what's eternal, whether you have Christ or not. Philip is then contrasted with Simon in verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had, had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. So he's He's kind of likened to a demigod, a half-god-man thing. And so they, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Okay, so they believed, they were baptized with water, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. Remember that. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And so we're introduced to Simon. He's a man of dark power. He actually has real uh, real dark power working through him. He's, he's probably got some fraudulent magic arts going on there, but he's also got some real demonic power going on. And he was, he's using this power to exalt himself. He talks about how great he is. But then he... Notices Philip doing his thing, and he's like, uh, that guy's got something that I don't have. His power's actually greater, and uh, Simon is using his lesser power to point people to himself, which by the way, if you have to do that, you have to you know if you have to boast about yourself, you're probably not that great <laughs> proverbs twenty seven two says "Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips." But uh, Simon's using his lesser power to point people to himself, while Philip is going to use the greater power to point people to Jesus. He points people to Jesus with his power. And so the principle here that's going to drive our mission is we point people to Christ and never to ourselves. We want to be reflective Christians. I like to think of myself as a mirror. Someone gives you know, me praise, it's like, well, just reflect that, refract that right back up to Christ. I'll praise God for that. Be a reflective Christian. Give, give God all the praise. Whatever gifts and talents God gives us, whatever He accomplishes through us, we just go, well, man, glory be to God. Amen. We're to use our, our gifts and our talents, our, our whatever. We use it all for His glory and we want to draw attention to Christ. But uh, there is a temptation, even in ministry. To, to try and draw the attention to yourself. And that's exactly what Simon is going to do as we work our way through this chapter. He's going to try and actually buy supernatural power from the apostles so that he can go out and make himself some more money and uh, draw more attention to himself. He actually becomes uh, the first uh, desiring charlatan in the Bible, uh, desiring to use the Spirit and the Gospel for uh, personal gain, it looks like. So... Um, Let's keep moving on in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Now, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? They're believers, they've been baptized, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. What's up with that? They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So, interesting account, right? Oh, well, what's up with this? We're not used to this. This ain't New Testament doctrine. What's going on here? Well, the Samaritans, they, they believe in Jesus, but they receive the Holy Spirit only when the apostles lay hands on them. And that's assuming this is talking about a delayed spirit baptism, the dry baptism Brother Brewer was talking about this morning. Uh, we're not talking about filling here, but actually like the Spirit entering them and sealing them. Uh, They've been water baptized, but they haven't been baptized by the Spirit. And and when we were beginning the book of Acts, uh, I made the comment that Acts is not a manual for church practice. Do you remember that? Acts is not a manual for church practice. It's a transitional book. We've talked about that a lot. It's a transitional book. And this particular account is one of the clearest reasons why we need to get that into our minds as we approach Acts. Because if we treat this as a manual for church practice, what are we going to start doing? We're going to start laying hands on people and praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Even if they say they've believed. I mean, that's, the, that's where that's going to lead. But what happened here is is unique. This is not even a regular pattern in the book of Acts. And so, to uh, treat this as normative church practice, I think it would be a great, great mistake considering the clear New Testament teaching on the work of the Spirit. Remember, we're in a time of transition, but now we have New Testament teaching on the work of the Spirit. Acts is just describing what happened in this historical moment when the Spirit went to the Samaritans in particular. And the clear New Testament epistles, I'll just remind us, they teach us that someone receives the Holy Spirit the moment that they believe in Jesus Christ, right? So they're they're listening to the message, and you're going to see this in Acts chapter ten, but they're listening to the message, and they believe. The light comes on, and they're like, "Ah, I believe that." In the moment they believe Christ, or they're baptized in that moment by the Holy Spirit as they're listening to the message, Ephesians chapter one verses thirteen and fourteen, um, Romans eight nine, uh, so the new believer probably, you probably didn't even know what happened in that moment you, that you believed. You were baptized invisibly by the Spirit of God, and you're sealed for God forever by Him, and He's never going to leave you. You're His child. You have a perfect position with God, and from there, what, what, what happens? You, become, you enter this process of sanctification so, you start to grow in Christ. Okay, you're in Christ. Now you have the divine nature and you can start growing in Christ. You can add to your faith different qualities, like we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Uh, you start to grow in Christ. Okay? Uh, Romans uh, 8 9 says plainly, if you have believed, you have the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you don't have Christ, you don't. And so, uh, this is not. Uh, This is important, okay, because it's going to rule out a somewhat popular doctrine, and this might step on some toes, but the second blessing doctrine, have you all heard of that? A second blessing doctrine, which basically says uh, you can be saved by believing, but you're only baptized by the Spirit once you fully surrender your life to Christ. Once you kind of make Him your Lord or you have your leaders pray over you, only when you're really committed, you know, to walking with Christ. Only then are you going to be baptized by the Spirit. And so you've got all these believers out there trying to be baptized by the Spirit. Well, they already have the Spirit. See how that affects church practice? It's very practical. So it's important that we talk about this. The answer to what's going on in this context is found in the historical cultural context. Context is king. Context is king. Context, context, context. Context and what we know from the context and other passages is that the Samaritans and the Jews they got along as well, about as well as the Palestinians and Jews do today. They hated each other. They just absolutely hated each other. And back this this all came about back when Assyria took the the ten uh, northern tribes captive. Remember the Northern Kingdom, ten tribes was taken captive to Assyria before the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken captive to Babylon later on. So they were taken first. And when Assyria took those 10 tribes captive, they actually sent, they left a remnant in the land, mostly poor farmers who wouldn't cause any trouble. They keep working the ground a little bit. But they also sent in, back into that area, Gentiles who brought their gods along with them. And so these Gentiles started to intermarry with the Jews. And so you ended up with this uh, kind of half-breed, Jew-Gentile mixed descendant, and that's why they got into an argument all the time with, with, when I guess when uh, when the Jews came back from Babylon, because uh, because the law said not to intermarry, and so they kind of treated them as these half-breed mutts, uh, they, as an impure bloodline, and they didn't want anything to do with one another. On top of that, they had religious deviations from the Orthodox Jews in the South. They even had a rival temple built on that Mount Gerizim right there. And so there's just spiritual competition. John 4.9 says the Jews actually had no dealings with the Samaritans. You remember that account of the woman at the well? And Jesus is talking to her, and she's like, how is it that you, being a Jew, would even ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan? Hey, we don't. We don't. We don't do this. We don't do this. We don't even converse with one another. Actually, if a Jew was going to go up up north to Galilee from Judea and Jerusalem, they would go up, cut across the river here, go up through Perea, and cut back across. Like they didn't. They wouldn't even go through the territory. So, for Jesus and his disciples to actually go through Samaria would be, you know, that was kind of mind blowing for them. You remember what uh, what they said when. When some of the Samaritan villages treated Jesus a little harshly, they wouldn't welcome him. I think it was James and John. They said, "Do you want us to call down fire? (laughs) You know, they went all went all nuclear on him. You want us to push the red button? Let's just obliterate these Samaritans." And Jesus is like, "Dude, you don't know what spirit you're of, okay?" (laughs) So, um, he he came to bring salvation to the Samaritans. And they're going to catch on to that. By the end of the chapter, we see them actually minister minister in Samaria. But uh, that's how James and John received the nickname Sons of Thunder. And that's how great the animosity was between them. They wanted to extinguish each other. And so by all of that to say, by delaying the reception of the Spirit to the Samaritans until the apostles came to lay hands on them, Christ is humbling them and making them realize salvation, number one, salvation is of the Jews. They thought they had it right, the Samaritans. They were wrong. They were wrong in their arguments. Salvation is of the Jews. The proper place to worship was in Jerusalem at the temple. But he's also going to say, by this, I'm serious about the unity of my church. And you Samaritans are not going to go start your own little Church of the Good Samaritan on Mount Gerizim that's going to compete with the Church of the Sanctimonious Jew on Mount Zion. <laughs> You're not, there's not going to be two churches here. You guys are going to be unified. This old rivalry between you, it has to go. It has to go. You guys are united you're going to be united under the apostolic authority and apostolic teaching. You guys are going to be one in Christ, all sons of God through faith in Christ. No, no Jew, no Greek, no Samaritan. You're all one in Christ. And, so, and then on top of that, this is what's cool, the temple argument, you know, who's worshiping where? That's over, isn't it? Now that Christ has come. Why? Because who's, who's the te- we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So that's not even an issue anymore. Jesus told that Samaritan woman, a day is coming when the, the, the worshipers that the Father seeks are going to worship in spirit and in truth. That, the debate's over. But that's the fourth mission driving principle. The unity of Christ's body is going to drive the mission because it's a powerful testimony when we are united, when a body of believing individuals is united. It's a powerful witness in advancing the gospel. You remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? Right? By your, your, he prayed that we would be one so that the world would know that the Father sent him. There's something about our unity that tells the world Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It's powerful. Okay? Okay? Unity is attractive. It it, it allows us to com- accomplish more. And when we stand together for the truth and for the true gospel, we're naturally standing against all of the other stuff out there. That's something to think about. We're standing against false teaching. So by a line you're saying, I'm, I'm unified with this group. I'm actually opposed to that false gospel out there. And that kind of stood out to me this week. Uh, because... Of that, I sent you that email on Sunday night last week talking about Dallas Jenkins and the Chosen series. And this is a series I was enjoying. And, uh, you know, after watching an interview with him in and a Mormon, and he works with a lot of Mormons over there in Utah. It's where it's filmed. The app is Mormon. He himself claims to be evangelical. But you listen to the interview and it's like, dude, you're not helping the mission here. By actually uh, uniting with the Mormons and fellowshipping, extending that right hand of fellowship, he is hindering the mission, big time, not helping it. He, he was saying things like, we love the same Jesus and we want to make the same Jesus known. Is that true? No, we don't have the same scriptures, we don't have the same Jesus, we don't have the same gospel. That's not true. And I put a devotional together uh, for you guys on that subject so I don't get all fired up up here. Because that, that makes me mad. We don't have the same Jesus. People who believe in their Jesus are going to hell and they're going to suffer eternally for it. So you're not helping the mission at all, Dallas. You're hindering it and you're keeping people from coming to the truth. And I'm guessing that they're going to go ahead and uh, continue on with making their videos and it's going to be ecumenical and they're not going to step on anybody's toes that goes under that, that heading of Christianity. But uh, I wanted to share that with you because, I don't know, if you're going to watch it, just, you know, be warned. You know, there's, there's limitations to how that can even grow you spiritually because they're already so ecumenical that they can't even really... Uh, show you or or preach the truth because they're too busy trying to please false doctrines anyway verse 18 when simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money and said give me also this ability so that everyone on whom i lay hands may receive the holy spirit and peter answered may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of god with money You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so, as you can see here, it's understandable why many Bible students are, are questioning Simon's faith. Is this guy saved or not? I mean, uh, his heart still is described as not right. He wants to purchase the ability to impart the Holy Spirit, uh, probably with the hope that he'll have more money and power and recognition. Um, his name lives in infamy. His name actually becomes a new vocabulary word called Simony. so uh, simony look it up in your dictionary buying and selling of ecclesiastical privileges and offices and simony if I'm even saying it right was prevalent during the dark ages of the Holy Roman Empire simony was everywhere the church became bureaucratic and it became this religious political beast that was hungry for money it was hungry for, for power During the Dark Ages period, which lasted longer than the Millennial Kingdom, more than a thousand years, if you think that's a long time, it's not. Uh, It lasted longer than a thousand years. This visible church was distracted from the mission. That whole church operated by an erroneous theology that actually contradicted the mission. It's called Kingdom Now Theology. Rather than... uh, So, basically... Rather than praying for a kingdom to come, Kingdom Now theology teaches the kingdom is now and we Christians are ruling through Christ. Persecuted rulers, huh? Uh, kingdom Now theology teaches there's no literal future reign of Christ on the earth, but the church is actually building the kingdom now. Today we kind of have a Kingdom Now light theology. We don't actually take it to its, its realistic ends, but... Uh, The church during the Dark Ages did, and that's why it was the Dark Ages. (laughs) They took kingdom now theology to its realistic ends. They took it seriously. And that's why they became the socio-political beast. And that's why you have things like the Holy Wars. We're fighting. We're a kingdom fighting on earth to build the kingdom. It's why you have Vatican City with its own currency. That's why they were selling indulgences. To people. They were selling spiritual blessings and salvation if you offer money, if you offer enough money to the church. Uh, It was Simony. See, ideas have consequences, and that theology of kingdom now, we're ruling now, Christ's kingdoms now, taken to its realistic ends, is what's going to produce things like that. And that's what caused the church for so many years to lose sight of its mission. It saw itself not as pilgrims and strangers on earth or ambassadors and you guys know ambassadors they're they're actually living in a foreign land aren't they they represent their home country but they're somewhere foreign and that's what we are we're strangers we're pilgrims we're we're foreigners we're ambassadors uh satan's ruling this world he's the prince of the power of the air the whole world lies in the power of the evil one john says but uh instead of being pilgrims and strangers and ambassadors who are praying for the kingdom to come, they started to think of themselves as Christian kings who were going to actually Christianize the world. We're going to Christianize it so that Christ can come back. But the reality is, is that the sooner we get to Christ's return, what do we see? We see the worse the conditions get in the world. It does not become Christianized. And only when uh, Satan actually takes pretty much full control through the Antichrist is when Christ comes back and by his power brings his kingdom. We can't bring it. He's got to come back. The kingdom comes when he comes back. Revelation chapter 19. And then he what? Then he binds Satan. He will bind Satan then. But right now, Satan is not bound. He will bind him then. So, uh, continuing on, I mean, we... We can't say for certain whether Simon was saved or not. It says he he believed and he was baptized. Uh, You kind of get the sense, you know, I don't know if his faith was more in the miracles of God or the God of miracles, but uh, his negative example is here for us to learn from. And by the way, could he have been saved? Let's just ask that. It says he believed, he was baptized. Could he have been saved? Yeah, can you be carnal? Can you have, like, worldly values? And ambitions, yeah, of course you can. I can. We've all got to, he's a newborn baby Christian maybe, and he's got to learn. (laughs) Uh, Meekness would be a good quality to learn for him right away. (laughs) Uh, Humility. So as soon as we become a newborn Christian, we've got to basically unlearn everything that's been ingrained in us since we were, you know, babies, Uh, We've got to unlearn the the ways of sin and and Satan and the fallen society that's uh, been ingrained in us. And instead, what did Paul say? We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Renewing of our minds. And uh, he reminds us of a fifth principle here. I'm getting a little off track, but he reminds us of a fifth principle is that That individuals must make a decision for Christ. Number one. Number one lesson from Simon that we can learn. Everybody's got to make a decision for Christ. And it's in Christ alone that we're going to be saved. We We can't buy heaven, we can't earn heaven, we can't do anything like that. All we can do is trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us, it's by grace. It's by grace through faith in Christ. But secondly, Christ is not just looking for or converts, is he? He's looking for disciples. If Simon really is a believer, God is going to uh, discipline him and chasten him by his Spirit and cause him to grow. And that's the second principle we learn from. Every believer is responsible to, to grow and to make disciples disciples. Themselves, we want to present every man mature in Christ, seeing them become useful and fruitful, productive members of the body, who receive great rewards when they get to heaven. Again, the reward is is not uh, it's not an issue of salvation; it's an issue of rewards. Once you've trusted Christ, and that's what we want to see. We want to see disciples who go on to make more disciples, and I think the apostles are a good example of those who have really grown spiritually, because you read about them in the Gospels, wanting to push the nuclear button on the Samaritans, and then by the end of this chapter here today, they're now preaching the Gospel to the Samaritans, to the villages in Samaria. Aren't you glad that the God gives us second chances? I know I am. And uh, this is kind of a funny illustration, but yesterday uh, I was playing fetch with my yellow lab. You guys know I have a yellow lab named... Uh, Callie. And uh, that dog, tell you what, uh, retrieving is what that dog lives for. I mean, that dog lives and breathes fetch, retrieving. Like, that's all she thinks about. As soon as she's out of her kennel or whatever, she is on that ball. She'll, she, She's after it, man. And before you know it, the ball's at my feet. She's that's what she lives. That's what she she breathes. And yesterday, I was out playing fetch with her. And that's not her, by the way, but uh, in the picture. But yesterday, I threw the ball in a direction that she wasn't expecting. She got a little ahead of me. She went that way when I threw the ball that way, and she lost it. And it was funny, because I couldn't... It didn't matter what I said to her. It didn't matter what I did. And I know this says I didn't train my dog well enough. I didn't... <laughs> but uh, it's like... I, I couldn't even distract her at all she's so bent on finding that ball that I couldn't even like point her to the direction that it actually was she's just on that ball she's just on point she's looking for it sniffing for it she's only focused on one thing and she was not going to be satisfied unless she had that one thing and she only had one mission at that time and I thought boy that's a really great illustration for us <laughs> that that sort of single-mindedness and Focus we've got to have about the mission of making disciples. There's so much out there we can get so distracted by. We can become disillusioned by everything that's going on in the church that we just kind of get, we start to spin. And we've got to come back and go on point and be like, what are we doing here? What are we about? We're about advancing the gospel, we're about making disciples. Let's pray, Lord. Uh, in a world where it's just so easy to become distracted and divided and disillusioned, just kind of caught up in the busyness of everything or distracted by even good things. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to have a single-mindedness, a focus, that we wouldn't lose sight of the mission that we've been called to and that we all have an important part in, no matter who we are, no matter what we do. By your grace, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stick to the mission. May we each finish well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.